Ideas Podcast. I'm Daniel Lazar, and I'm proud to be the co-founder of and the faculty advisor to the John F. Kennedy School Ideas Club. Ideas was born of the demand that in our time of crises, in our age of anxiety, when democracy is fragile, when intolerance is increasingly tolerated, we must intensify our efforts to create a safe, yet a challenging space to discuss and to celebrate diversity. The Ideas Podcast provides a forum for Ideas members and our esteemed guests, of course, to grapple with vexing issues pertaining to our core mission. As a follow-up to last week's discussion of what is to be done with Uncle Tom's Hute Uban, in this episode, we seek to grapple with the problems of memorialization. Joining me for this deep dive is the managing editor of the Ideas Journal and the producer for the Ideas Podcast, L-I-L-I Lily. How's it going over there? Pretty good. It's great to have you. And along with Lily, we have the Ideas Director of Community Outreach and all-round JFK stud, Hannah Cook. How you doing? I'm holding in there. It's good. You keep holding in there. And of course, the Director of Ideas, the fearless and tireless leader of our mission, the Bab of Babelsberg, or the Babe of Babelsberg, Jacob. You doing all right? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. And last but not least, we have a special guest for this episode, an artist, a teacher, my neighbor, and a BFF in Berlin, Mr. Benjamin Rubloff. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you so much for joining us. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. As memorials are objects of public commemoration, we demand a lot of them. They serve as testaments to lives lost, as repositories of grief, and to facilitate processes of mourning. We expect them to do the work of history writing, to draw single, comprehensible narratives out of a gorgon's nest of individual, often contradictory experiences. These meanings serve as unifying forces, reinforcing the idea of a shared national identity and healing rifts in the communal experience of nationhood. By endowing memorials with the ability to accomplish these tasks, we bestow them with an extraordinary amount of power and authority. Thus writes Elizabeth Wolfson of Brown University in a critical essay published in Art 21 magazine. And in this episode, we seek to question the power and the authority of three memorials, namely the Memorial of Murdered Jews of Europe, the Soviet War Memorial, and the Stolperstein Project more broadly. We're going to do it in that order to set the table just a little bit the film critic and staff writer Richard Brody in the New Yorker contribution titled The Inadequacy of Berlin's Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, takes a stab at Berlin's memorialization of the Jews killed in the Holocaust. While giving earned credit to Germans for their efforts to somehow deal with and atone for their past, he argues, and I'm quoting here, the title doesn't say Holocaust or Shoah, in other words, it doesn't say anything about who did the murdering or why. 
there's nothing along the lines of by Germany under Hitler's regime. And the vagueness is disturbing. End quote. Of course, it's supposed to be disturbing, and Mr. Brody surely understands that. But he does raise some questions. So let's deal with those questions starting here. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings about Berlin's memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe? It doesn't serve um, all of the purposes that I think a memorial of, of that nature should. I have some issues with it. I think its vagueness um, could be a, a source of, I don't know, consideration amongst people viewing it, but I think it might actually take away from the message when people don't really know what it what it means, what the ideation behind it was, especially. Yeah, no, I think when it's unclear what it's trying to do, it's, it's not as effective of a memorial. I, I would agree with Lily in the sense that it's vague. And if you didn't know, per se, where and what it's supposed to be in Berlin, you could walk straight past it and not even really realize what it is. I think there's placards definitely around it, but they don't seem very prominent to me. But the actual memorial itself, I personally find hauntingly beautiful. I think there's something really oppressive and alienating about it, which speaks a lot for many of the feelings during that time that people you know, had to endure. And so I personally am a fan of the memorial, but I think more could be done. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I agree with both Liliana and Hannah. I think we need to keep in mind this is an incredibly difficult issue to sort of put in one memorial, right? Obviously, it's going to need to be addressed on many different levels. However, the Holocaust Memorial in itself, uh, I must agree with Hannah because I believe it's very, the effect it has on you when you walk in or even just look from the outside of those just concrete towers looming over you. Um, as you walk through the maze and you you don't know where to go and suddenly, you know, the city, the sound of the city drowns out and all of that, it's truly a profound effect and it sort of displays a lot of the fears and anxieties felt by a lot of people during that time period. So I think it does, it does the job of sort of delivering on emphasizing the oppressive nature of the time. It does that very well. Yeah, I might chime in here. Uh, I think the way that Jacob and Hannah described it, I think is quite apt because I think what's what's very powerful about it is that it's experiential. And so Eisenman's design, his idea was to trust a viewer to be able to have an experience, which is, you know, actually it's quite different than any other kind of memorial where one is guided toward uh, a clear uh, reflection on names or numbers or information. And, you know, as an architect, it's really, his, his position is to create something that's fully experiential and he allows it to be vague. And I think, I mean, I read all the criticism when, when, it, when it came out and um, I found it very disheartening how little trust there was in art to do something. I think it's wonderful when it can be experienced and when people are able to name their experience. And of course, people have different kinds of experiences there. 
and I think that was a really, I think it was really democratic of him to to open it up to say that there might be really a range of ways that people engage in that space. So I don't know if I meant that I like really dislike it. I, I don't like dislike it. I just think specifically talking about the vagary of the memorial, I, I'm not convinced that making it so unclear what it is helps the memorial. In general, I agree. It's it's a really haunting and, and beautiful message, but I just don't know if all of the steps they seem to have taken to keep it unclear and non-obvious. I understand the messaging that it's it, it doesn't always, you know, fascism or or genocide even, you know, doesn't always appear in the obvious way that it would in a history book. I think that's a that's a great message, but I'm not sure the way that they communicated it was the most effective in actually getting that message across. Lily, is that your discomfort or frustration with it, that it allows for such a broad range of experiences and even interpretations and and you find that frustrating? No, I don't think so. I think I agree that that's, that that's an interesting aspect of, you know, the artwork. I think my issue with it comes when there's a general like scorn for people who maybe then don't have the experience that everyone else has, maybe don't get it. Um, and I think, yeah, if you're trusting the viewer to have that deep emotional experience, if some people aren't paying attention and then they get caught doing something stupid by the memorial and, you know, publicly shamed on the internet or something, I think that's pretty harsh. I think if you're going to have a memorial like that values the individual experience so much, you can't, you can't police too harshly what people are going to do with it. Obviously, doing, you know, anti-Semitic racist things around the memorial is one thing and just sitting on it, which people find disrespectful is another. Yeah. So I guess I was talking more in reference to the criticisms that we might be discussing later in that, you know, people, people are very sensitive about how everyone should act at the memorial, even though I think we've all decided here that it's about individual experience. Well, we can talk about it now. I I get the sense that this issue was brought by the students to this podcast because there's an interest among you in having some dialogue about how to engage with that particular piece of public art. Jacob, let me put this question to you. And it's hardly a hypothetical one. Do you find anything offensive about people picnicking on top of the stones at the Holocaust Memorial? Um, yeah, so I personally, I know there's sort of a debate about this, whether or not it's a, like tragic or beautiful to have people have a nice experience within the um, memorial. Personally, I'm on the side of it's tragic and morally indefensible. I agree with Liliana said that my, many people might not understand the significance of the of the memorial or can't handle the personal responsibility that sort of falls onto them when they enter the memorial. However, I don't think this is an excuse. I think it needs to educate yourself about the issue 
um, so as to not be a dis be disrespectful at the memorial, um, especially considering the nature of the memorial, right? Um, many people have already mentioned that it's sort of an interactive experience. I strongly agree. Um, and especially in interactive experience like that, it's very important that you mind every move that you make. And I think that's not an inachievable goal at all. I, but I take issue with that, I think. You, you said that you were, you, you found it beautiful that it was, it was such an, a vague and haunting experience. And then you want people to, to all act the exact same way around it. I mean, you guys were saying that you, you don't want it to just be like a guided tour of what to think. And, and then you expect everyone to act the exact same way within the memorial and think the same things as you when they experience it. I, I don't get that, really. I think you have to believe one or the other. People have to experience the memorial in the way it affects them truly, or you should give them a better guide. It's not. I don't think everyone should act the exact same way around the memorial. In fact, I think different ways that people take in the memorial is what makes it beautiful. However, I think there are certain very clear uh, lines that one should not cross. Um, I think specifically eating there is sort of this gray area, which we can discuss. How are you eating? Are you solemnly I don't know, consuming food or are you blasting music and having a fun time with your friends? I think there's a clear distinction there. Um, every situation is going to be different. However, I think there, despite there obviously being a wide range of what people, um, how people perceive the monument and how people take it in and choose to deal with the situation, with the, with the horrible truth that it presents you with. Uh, I think there are still some lines that are not to be crossed. For example, playing in the monument, doing handstands or yoga, playing music, anything, anything like that. Now, I don't have a rubric for this. Every action should be judged individually, but I think there's some very clear exceptions. I, I have a very hard time, and this is just me personally, with the aspect of mourning in a more celebratory way, I guess the flourishing of Jewish life post-Holocaust is something to celebrate and something that's very beautiful in, in Berlin and in Germany. And I know it's hard, you can't you know, look inside someone's mind and be like, okay, they're just actually having lunch here because they have no idea or they don't care and they just want a place to sit. Or they're having lunch here because they're thinking and interacting with this memorial in a deep kind of way. So it's really difficult to draw a line. And I agree with Lily there, but I, I think Jacob has a point. There's, there's common sense and there's a sense of responsibility that goes along with interacting with this memorial. And I feel like it should be made more obvious that you're actually respecting it. And I think having lunch there and blasting music, okay, maybe we should move away from that example because that's a gray area, but disrespectful in a way that people could interpret it as disrespectful and I wouldn't even attempt to do anything that is ambiguous like that. The eating thing is a gray area. There are many gray areas. However, after you brought up that point, you said the handstand thing, for example, is a clear example of crossing the line, which is exactly what I said, right? I think we can we can agree. Now you asked, should would you like me to, uh, if I should put up rules or whatever? Um, again, I said, I don't have rules, right? I, I would need to judge every situation individually. It's just making sure as individuals, when you go there, be conscious of yourself, be conscious of how you perceive it if other people were to do it, right? And there is clearly, I think we can agree there's clearly inconsiderate behavior, right? I mean, you, you admitted this yourself with, with the handstand thing. But I think the way the memorial is constructed, yes, it is very abstract and that serves 
an important purpose because each generation and every person reflects differently upon, you know, the show and the, and the Holocaust and their culpability or their part in that. And so I think while it is abstract, we mentioned before, you do get this feeling of oppression, of alienation, of anxiety when you walk into the memorial. So I have a hard time connecting that to any kind of sort of joy. I think you can't police how people are going to act in the memorial so much. I th- I think there can be basic rules of respect, but I don't think there can be all these unwritten rules and everyone there is getting judged on a case-by-case basis. I don't think that's that's an effective way to go about memorial at all. I think it's interesting, you know, that we're talking about this in relationship later to the so- uh, Soviet monument because the Soviet monument was you know, designed with very specific uses. And young people were made to attend ceremonies there and act in a certain way. And that monument is very clear about uh, the ideology behind it and how one's supposed to show reverence and the hierarchy in, in the, the monument itself. And I think it's it's really a kind of an interesting juxtaposition because this this... Uh, postmodern design, this recent design by Eisenman, is really like trying to undermine that approach to memorialization. And part of what that means, if it is, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the monument, and I think most I have trouble with a lot of the criticism of it because I think the the idea is well, if you put this in the middle of a city and allow it to become part of the life of the city. Perhaps the ways in which it creates new experiences and conversations and reflection might be in unexpected ways. Who's to say that people who are meeting and uh, eating there are not engaging in some way or, uh, with, with the past? So I, I think it's, I think it's interesting if, you know, if you juxtapose it with a kind of structure of memorial where the, where, where the action and the engagement is very predetermined. If I can be so bold, I I would like to push into this. Now, as your moderator, uh, I, I can't boast having done a whole lot of research to moderate this discussion, but I did in fact, for the purposes of moderating this, uh, reach out to uh, a fellow Jew, uh, an Israeli, in fact, and I asked him his thoughts. And one thing that he said, I want to put to you. He said, bluntly, I feel like I can do whatever the hell I want to do there. He picnics there. That's why I call them. I know this. He sits on top and he eats what he wants to eat. Most of his family, much of his family, died in the Holocaust. And does it matter who, does it matter who it is? And does it matter what music is being played? If a bunch of kids who attend the Jewish school down the street on the Ranyanstraza wanna play traditional Hebrew songs or modern Israeli music out of their Yui Boom speaker on the Sabbath on the Friday night and smoke cigarettes and drink beer and dance, I would have a real hard time saying that they're being 
inappropriate. And I, I wonder if someone can comment on that. Who gets to interact with the Holocaust Memorial in what way beyond, you know, obviously hateful things, especially I, I have no, you know, a Jewish affiliation. I don't think it's my place to decide. It's, it's, it's not about me. And then what I feel comfortable with at the Holocaust Memorial, I don't think is what the Holocaust Memorial rules should be. I think, yeah, no, I don't think it's, it's up to any of us individuals to decide. I think people have to decide for themselves because of the vague nature of the memorial, how they want to interact with it. I think it's um, absolutely uh, fine. It's part of a conversation. What I'm having trouble with is the idea that this is a, a, a moral argument. This is a, the, the architect designed something in public space with the intention that public space has, is used and occupied in such a variety of ways by people with different experiences, different knowledge, different age, ages. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe the heart of what's really interesting about the monument is that it sparked all of the controversy that it did in making, you know, making people uncomfortable around how do we remember and 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 what is what is the possibility to actually remember the event of the holocaust i mean paul celan said there could be no poetry after the holocaust so it's it's such a it's it's such a tremendous thing to grasp that maybe the only way to do it is something that's kind of intervention in public space that leaves it open, both in terms of different kinds of use, but also for the conversation we're having right now. That is a poetic way to wrap up the first segment, but somewhat selfishly, I just have to raise a hypothetical scenario. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a world where the Berlin police or the Ortungsamt are policing that for behavioral infractions and the way that would fundamentally change the tone and the content of that work. So I think that's terribly disturbing. And I don't know what the solution is, but I think we've raised some really powerful questions. And along those lines, there are some powerful questions around the Stolperstein project. I think everyone who lives in Berlin knows about uh, how the German artist Gunther Demnig for the last, you know, tw 25 years, 30 years has been um, putting down these bronze stones at the last place that um, the last residence that people lived in uh, before succumbing to the Holocaust. 75,000 have been laid. Can I ask each of you in turn, like how you interface with Stolperstein? Do you walk on them? Do you walk around them? Would you ever sit on one? Is there a right way to go about it? What do each of you do? Hannah, can you go first? What's your, what, how do you tend to engage? And when you step on one, are you like, oh, uh, tell me. <laughs> Um, you kind of got it exactly right. I definitely try 
to avoid stepping on them sometimes if I'm not looking down and I'm in a rush and I do step on one I do look back and I usually read them anyways but especially then I feel more of a guilt and I do go back and interact with them this is just my personal feeling of conscience and guilt but I think it's super interesting to read them and to interact with them and yeah so I try to be of aware of them as possible are there some in your neighborhood that you see every morning and afternoon? Yeah, a bunch. Do you know their names? I'm not going to ask you to recite them, but like, do you, do you, are, they, are they people in your life? I wouldn't say that I know their, know their names specifically and that they're people in my life, but kind of, kind of, kind of. Jacob? I, I tend to agree with Hannah on this one. Um, I don't, usually the uh, Stolpersteine, they catch me off guard, right? That's sort of the purpose, right? You're going somewhere, the Holocaust and everything is not on your mind at all. And suddenly you look down and you see this stone, right? With the, with the, um, with the name on it. And I do try to every time take my time to read and think about what happened here. Obviously there are exceptions, right? Like if I'm rushing somewhere, like what Hannah said, basically. Um, but I do think, I think that's exactly the, key avoid them any any time you're doing anything in berlin walking by foot you will inevitably at some point cross with them right and they catch you off and i think that's really impressive you know um i don't live in an area that has any Stolpersteine, so i don't see them all that often but i don't know i guess i never consciously thought about how i step around them i don't think i would you know step on one um when I see them, I stop and read them. I consider that there was a real family or a real person who lived or worked in the place I was standing who's been murdered. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a pretty powerful statement. I love Dutch I think, I mean, it's a great project. It's a great form of memorial. I, like you, am haunted by Stolpersteine. I'm haunted by the ghosts of Berlin. And one of the most haunting monuments, memorials to Germany's past um, is the Soviet War Memorial. It was erected by the Soviet Union to commemorate its war dead, uh, and in particular, the 80,000 soldiers, Soviet soldiers who died during the Battle of Berlin at the end of the war. The Soviet War Memorial, uh, particularly in the age of deteriorating relationships between Russia and the world, but Russia and Germany in particular, it's earned some really unbecoming and unflattering nicknames like the Tomb of the Unknown Rapist, a reference to the innumerable war, war crimes committed by occupying Soviet forces. In 2010, the monument was vandalized before Victory in Europe Day celebrations with red graffiti that said thieves, murderers, and rapists. And the Russian embassy uh, made a big diplomatic kerfuffle out of it. Uh, Benjamin, can we start with you this time to just sort of paint a picture, as is your want, of the Soviet War Memorial and what it is? And then I want to hear from each of you about like how you grapple with it. I think what's interesting about the monument is uh, that it's part, it was part of the Soviets movement to immediately 
engage in public works of memorialization and remembrance of uh, their victory um, and the heroics that they wanted to connect with their victory. And, you know, if you think about the Stoppelstein in comparison, where we have a really decentralized monument that is a, is a tiny thing that sets off uh, like a much bigger feeling, the Soviet monument functions in kind of the opposite way. It's this huge spectacle that then um, you, you're just kind of caught in this spectacle. I've, um, I actually went there, I was brought there in 1998, the first time I came to Berlin. And the guy who brought me there told me that nobody ever went there during uh, the East German times, unless there was a celebration that they were kind of required to go like the, you know, the communist youth group or something like that. So I think it's a, you know, it's a very different kind of space. And, I, you know, it's memorialization, but not for uh, a local community really to reflect because it's a Russian monument. So it's, um, I mean, in many ways you can see it and, and, and the way that it was seen by the, uh, the public in East Germany was as an occupier space. It's very recent, I think only in the last 10 years or so, you see people really going to the monument. It used to be empty, save for some worker that was hired by the Russian government to, you know, replace all of the mosaic stones. I have a hard time imagining there was no part in its erection that wasn't involved with, you know, sort of a punishment to the Germans for having, you know, treated the Russians so, so cruelly and initially, um, which of course was met with, with equal cruelty later on in the war. But I think it, it was a, a sort of a Russian, you know, we own you, we won. We are going to memorialize these soldiers you killed in your city. Um, so I don't think it was ever meant to be, you know, respectful to the German people. I think it was supposed to like you said, glorify uh, the Russian soldiers. Um, and I mean, I understand, I, I very much so understand, you know, why the German people didn't visit it and, and didn't like it and maybe still don't like it. Yeah, so here's my stance. Um, I think the core question which you asked, which is, uh, is it offensive? I think it's absolutely offensive. But I s still think um, that is exactly why we need it there. I think there's little more of an ironic statement than to complain about a World War II memorial from the Russian perspective being offensive. If it was any less, then it wouldn't be such an important historical relic, right? I think, you know, we need to accept the history is here. We, the German, the German, not we, but the German nation um, in the 1940s brutally destroyed Russia. And then in retaliation, the Russians brutally destroyed half of Germany. Um, that is history. This is undeniable. And I think that looming tower that both signals liberation from the Nazi regime, but also the cruelties of, um, of the Soviet occupation. I think that, I mean, it perfectly embodies it, whether it was the original intention or not. Um, I, I agree with Lily here. The intention was clearly to sort of assert their domin uh, dominance over, over the German people. However, 
I think nowadays we choose to see it more as more as a more as an artifact rather than a memorial. Um, the, the soldiers that died really did die, and I think um, and they but they were also killers, right? This is two sided dichotomy, and I think a controversial and sort of very up in your face monument like the Soviet War Monument uh, monument um, is absolutely apt for the situation. I think that that's a really important point that uh, Jacob is making about um, the reality of what what happens to monuments as they become um, artifacts or they become part of a, a, histor a historical context that no longer exists. And I think it's very interesting to think about then what that means in terms of how we make meaning and experience them and that they, I, I think it's, um, it's maybe a little hard to say, to question whether it should be exist as a memorial when it really is a marker of history. And it's this kind of play about what happens in the space of these places as they change and as their, our awareness of them and our usages of them shifts with time. You know, the question at the time around Soviet monuments after reunification was, should they go or should they stay? Are they markers of a brutal regime or are they part of history that should be remembered? I wanna thank all four of you for earnestly, passionately and compassionately engaging in these really harrowing topics. It's so hard, just so hard to dive into these topics late on the Monday night or any time for that matter. But you all did it with such dignity and grace. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to do so. That's exactly what our, our club and our podcast seeks to do. So thank you for doing it. I suppose as these things go, we probably raised more questions than we did provide answers. And I hope that all of you and our listeners are okay with that. With that said, I'd like to offer each of you a chance to recommend to our audience something that speaks to the idea's mission. Ideally, this is something that they can get their hands on in the throes of a pandemic. So each of you, one at a time, uh, I will link to your endorsements on our show page. Hannah Cook, what would you like to endorse this week? Uh, I endorse a Netflix documentary titled Bikram, Yogi Guru, Predator. And I wanna give a trigger warning that it discusses sexual assault and rape. And it examines the man behind the sensation of Bikram or hot yoga and details his grossly successful career up to his disgrace and accusations of rape and sexual harassment. And many people don't realize that there's a person connected to Bikram, let alone such a controversial one. And I think, especially in light of our conversation about naming and legacy, this is a very interesting watch. Thank you very much for your endorsement. I, if I can get the stomach to do so, I'll watch it. Jacob. Yeah, so mine is uh, not as dark, but it is very, very good. Uh, this weekend, I had the privilege of watching the Hamilton movie. Uh, on Disney Plus, which for those who don't know, Hamilton is the musical dealing with the uh, founding father, Alexander Hamilton. Now, why I believe this speaks to the idea's mission, um, 
the show and the movie by extension, since it's just a recording of the show, um, has a very diverse cast and it presents American history in a very different light. Uh, one that you usually don't see, but it still remains faithful to the history. It's not just a complete, um, it's not just revisionism, right? Um, it, you know, besides like obviously the social aspect, the music is just great. It's a great, it's wonderfully acted. Um, it has some great uh, dialogue, some great scenes, some great character development. It's just a really, really good show and really, really good film. Um, plus it has some really interesting uh, ideas about democracy, about uh, inclusion, about slavery, about history in general and how we should deal with it. Um, so yeah, I strongly endorse that. I encourage anyone to take a little bit of a deep dive into the life and work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, in the light of her, of her death this week. Um, whether that be, you know, watching the, the pretty recent film about her fight for gender equality, whether that be um, reading one of her books, um, like there's a notorious RBG, which is, you know, pretty great title too. So if you want to judge a book by its cover, read that one. Um, I think, you know, her career as a legislator, as a judge, um, and, you know, as, as a really prominent figure who, you know, single-handedly did so much for women's liberation, women's rights um, in America. She's, she's just, she's, you know, she's a role model. She's an idol of mine. And I think, you know, in the light of her passing, it's important for everyone to take a moment to reflect on how, you know, a hardworking individual like Ruth Bader Ginsburg can have such a, you know, widespread effects on the culture of an entire nation. I think it's, it's pretty remarkable. Benjamin Rubloff, did you come with an endorsement for us? I have two, actually, if that's allowed. We treat our guests well. Go for it. Brian Ladd's book, Ghosts of Berlin, looks at the history of Berlin and its development with a kind of uh, focus on notions of memory and remembrance. Um, and also the sort of the politics of the construction of the city. It's a fabulous read and very interesting for all of the things we were talking about today. Um, and then the, the, the second thing is just uh, the live Bill Withers on YouTube, which uh, is just an incredible uh, piece of art to experience and uplifting. Watch him sing grandma's hands and just cry along. Exactly. Grand, I was thinking Grandma's Hands is about history. It's remarkable. Thank you all. This was a total pleasure. I have to confess my Monday wasn't easy, but thank you for helping me to end it on a high note. To our audience, you can find us for now at jfksideas at wixsite.com. You could read our journals. There, we have a new journal coming out pretty soon. I'm wicked excited about it. Can't wait to get in the edit of that. Look, we're two episodes into season two, so please subscribe, leave a like, offer a comment, and most importantly, please share the Ideas Podcast with your people. If you like it, share it. That's all I'm saying. Thanks, everyone. It has been a total pleasure. Please take care, and I hope to see you all soon. Bye.